0: Everybody and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Whom God Has Joined by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. And we are at chapter nine, Anointed Assignment. In nineteen thirty-one, some months before Catherine was born, our nearest missionaries ten days' journey west of Pashan gave us an invitation to come over and help them in a special evangelistic effort at their station. The call Westward Ho has always stirred our blood. So we accepted joyfully. On such trips, John usually rode a horse or walked, and I rode a mountain chair. One particular afternoon, we were winding up and over mountaintops for a long time. I was wondering where we would sleep that night. The sun had begun to lower, and yet we were still wandering over wild, uninhabited mountains. Suddenly, John, who was walking a little distance ahead of us, disappeared. I got out of the mountain chair and began to walk, hoping to speed up my slow carrier's. I helloed, John, but there was no answer. He had turned to wave to me just before going over the crest of the peak, so I hurried up that little slope, turned the corner, and gasped. The mountain fell away from my feet in a steep drop to the tiers of lower hills graduating heights, like a colossal step descending. There, far below, was John, a mere speck on the path that circled one of the tiers before it dropped to the next hill. He turned to look for me, saw me, and waved. The range had given way to a beautiful little green valley, at least 2,000 feet beneath us. Through the valley ran a stream, shining like a silver ribbon through emerald fields with a sunset glory gliding the opposite mountain bank. From the other side of the valley rose tier after tier of hills until it leveled off even where I now stood. It made me feel as if I was on top of the world. It was the valley of Yangping, meaning eternal peace. We were to spend the night in the little market town that huddled against the foot of the western hills. Far below me, John was signaling with his arms that I should hurry up, reluctant to leave that most wonderful panorama. I knew by the setting sun that I must, so down the grassy slopes I ran. The population was mostly Muslim. That night, after our supper, we went on to the street for open-air meeting, as was our custom, but the audience was unmoved, stony-faced and indifferent. John felt depressed. As we prepared for bed in the dusty little inn, he said to me, I suppose someone will be asked to come here and open this plane to the gospel. A missionary has never lived here, so there's never been a thorough presentation of the message. I pity the person that has to tackle this job. Maybe Mr. Fraser will ask Will to come here. Will Allen was noted among us as always rising to the occasion. Neither John nor I dreamed that we would be the ones that Mr. Fraser would assign to this difficult task yet it was so mr fraser had never intended that missionaries should stay on in an old established work like tali the chinese christians should run their own church eventually and there were still many large areas of west yunnan unevangelized therefore when the last batch of forward movement workers had been sent to us mr fraser suggested that we ourselves open a new district eternal peace was the place he named I have seldom seen my husband more downcast. He had loved the work at Tali. For him, it had been a joy to explore the needy fields around Tali, to help in the initial preaching efforts, now to be confined to one valley of such different and difficult people as Muslims. To me, the appointment was quite agreeable. I had fallen in love with a beautiful little plane, but I was also glad to get back to the life nearer the Nationals. Tali was on the main road of travel, and for me as a hostess, There was much entertaining of missionaries of other missions, not to mention world explorers and hunters. I had lost several of my Chinese Bible classes through the constant interruption of unexpected Western visitors. I was also happy at the prospect of an area big enough for life work, but small enough that I could always get back home by nightfall and sleep in my own clean bed. I did not like travel, but I felt sorry for John. The work in the church and the country around Tali had been thriving but now blessings seemed to leave and sickness struck us. We had recently received four young men as new workers when I came down with a fever we could not diagnose. There was no doctor nearer than Kunming at that time, a two-week journey away. Nurse Ruth Calhoun, later Mansfield, was summoned from Mitu. She came gladly, but she had never seen a fever like it. Searching the medical books, she felt that Blackwater fever was the nearest in description to what I was experiencing. I grew steadily weaker, and John became concerned for my life. As he knelt at my bed, praying that I might be allowed to recover, the Lord spoke to him about his own inner unwillingness for our new assignment. There was a keen struggle. Then he yielded. I began to improve, but I was exceedingly weak when the fever left me and almost had to learn to walk anew. St. Francis de Saul said, If he calls you to a kind of service which is according to his will, but not according to your taste. You must not go to it with less, rather with more courage and energy than if your taste coincided with his will. Blessing began to flow again. There is a definite relationship between inner surrender and outward blessing, which is another proof of a living God who can read the innermost heart. Outwardly, John had accepted the assignment graciously, and fellow workers were witnessing as zealously as ever. Yet a sudden tightness had come which only began to loosen again after his private surrender. In those two and a half years at Tali in 1930 to 1932, we received ten new workers, helped them to get through their first language exams, rented premises, and assisted them to get started in six different towns, including Yangping. Each place had a whole plain full of Chinese, until then unevangelized. Besides, in and around Tali souls were saved. John and I finished the required language examinations and Catherine was born to us. Chapter 10. Beginnings at Yangping. At the northern end of the plain of Yangping was a little town called Old Market. The population here was not so wholly Muslim and John was blessed in obtaining an old native house on the river bank. It had three wings around the little courtyard. The fourth side was the river walk. The unwashed dirt years lay everywhere, and the walls were black with soot. John was disheartened at the task of cleaning it up and repairing it, but I saw possibilities in its spaciousness and loved the privacy of the river bank. Don't worry, I assured him gaily. Sally and I will soon clean it up and transform it. Sally Kelly, who later became Mrs. Stuart Harverson was our newest younger worker. She was to live with us during the first language study days. She was a Scottish girl from my own hometown, Vancouver. Unselfish, capable, and devoted, she also sparkled with wit and humor. The longer we knew her, the more we loved her. God prospered us, too, in getting the help of two fine Chinese carpenters, a father and a son. They not only repaired the house, putting in wooden floors and windows, but also made furniture for us. They charged a lump sum of two months' labor, and as they were very industrious, it made the cost of repairs and furniture quite reasonable. There had been the matter of servants. John was waiting until we got to Yangping, where we would hire some local residents and train them. But Catherine was about a year and a half old when we moved to Yangping, just the toddling age when she must be watched carefully, especially as we lived so near the river. I had been warned by someone born of a child in CIM missionaries never to leave my children to the National Amaz or let unbelievers play with them. Evil habits and speech can be learned in early childhood and are difficult to eradicate later, so I was always very careful and watchful with my little one. Our cook, Mrs. Wong, was a widow with one child, a daughter of about 13 years old. The daughter, Small Pearl, was a spoiled child but she was a pure little thing and took care of our small Catherine, so I wished to bring mother and daughter with us to young Ping. You know that Mrs. Wong is not satisfactory, John argued. Yes, I replied, but who is to market and cook and watch Catherine while we clean that sooty house? I will be in no situation to train raw hands during the first week or so. All right, have it your way, my hubby said with a good natured But I'm afraid you'll be sorry. And oh, wasn't I. Mrs. Wong worked hard at first and certainly did relieve me during the cleaning period, and Small Pearl was always reliable in caring for little Catherine. Downstairs in the central wing was to be the Chinese guest hall in a dining room, with a small room at the side of for John's study. The long black hole upstairs was to be our bedroom. The carpenter put a window in or so, and then we set out to clean the room. It had been the ancestral worship hall, and placed against the wall was a long buffet-like table where idols had stood. There was no ceiling. Long, soot-encrusted cobwebs hung from the roof tiles. With hair tied up in a handkerchief and broom in hand, Sally mounted the table to sweep the roof. She struck a dramatic attitude and with an outflung arm began, Behold I! Crash! The house shook. Black soot rained down upon us and I thought for a second that the end of the earth had come. I had instinctively shut my eyes in self-defense, but when I opened them... I saw in horror a heap of soot black rags on the floor before me. Out from the top of them stared two startled sky-blue eyes. They were the only part of Sally Kelly I still recognized. The rest looked like the dirtiest chimney sweep Scotland had ever produced. The table had a broken leg and Sally's 100 pounds had caused it to collapse. But the weight of the fall so shook the house that it acted as a roof cleaner. The soot of many years was knocked off and descended upon us. When we realized that no bones had been broken and saw that our roof was so unexpectedly cleaned for us, we laughed till we shook again. This was typical of those days of repairing the breaches in eternal peace. Soap, water, whitewash effected quite a transformation. Of course, visitors were not lacking, and one of us was always free to witness to them. We expected it would prove a hard place, so you can imagine our feelings when one afternoon a great racket outside of our gate startled us and brought us all running. Through our front gate, a procession marched. First came boys setting up firecrackers. Pop, pop, bang, bang. What's going on, John muttered, coming forward to receive them. Behind the fireworks was a single file of leading citizens of Old Market, each carrying a tray with gifts on them. This was a handsome pair of scarlet satin scrolls for one, packages of sugar or tea on others, and so on. Mystified but gracious, John showed them into the guest room and relieved relieved them of their packages. The leading townsmen had come to welcome us to eternal peace, and they all meant to join us. They had heard about the Christian church, and they noticed that Pastor Kuhn did not drink or smoke. Fine morality. They were all for that, too, but gradually, of course. Buddhism was old-fashioned, they realized, and it would be wise to have something more modern, just like a benefit society, you know. They all beamed at John. It was difficult, but also an excellent opportunity. John explained that Christianity was not a new kind of club, but a personal relationship with God, based on his forgiveness of our sins. All men are sinners. Yes, yes, they nodded in grave assent, thinking this was Pastor Coon's way of referring to wine and tobacco. When he got to, Thy shalt have no other gods before me, they began to talk. Perhaps idols were old-fashioned, they could go. But of course, Pastor Coon could not ask them to give up ancestral worship Why, that was a basis of Chinese culture. Confucius and Christ could get along quite well together, could they not? They were politely incredulous when we told them that Christians may worship no one but God, most decidedly not ancestors, who were but creatures of his creation. We may venerate our ancestors, but not worship them, John said. In embarrassment, they took their leave. After John had politely escorted them to the door and warmly urged them to come again for more discussion, he returned to us, Did you ever see more vivid of an illustration of what I've been reading these days? Campbell Morgan was saying in the Acts of the Apostles, Satan's first choice is to cooperate with us. Persecution is only his second best method. From then on, the work at eternal peace was just as difficult as we had preconceived it. Several illiterate peasant women were won to the Lord, and a young fellow named Ma Fu Yung could read. His death before he was thirty left the little group of Christians without a leader. It was not until communism took over years later, and with all the white missionaries gone, that an educated Chinese lady was led of the Lord to go to eternal peace. There she gleaned a harvest from seed long sown, watered with prayers, And we heard that the little church was thriving in eternal peace, led by this Christian Chinese lady. But this is moving ahead of our story. At first, our cook was quite helpful. But as new young workers come to live with us, Mrs. Wong relapsed into her old laziness. She could not buy or prepare enough food. She would not make bread when told to and ran it so short that frequently had to go a meal or so without because her new batch had not risen and so on. It caused me almost as much trouble as if I had to do it all myself. More and more, she became a thorn in the flesh. When I spoke of dismissing her, she immediately made precarious claims. I must pay her for travel by Sudan chair back to Tali and pay for an escort as she was afraid to go alone. Then I would have to pay for a Sudan chair for small pearl, too, and coolies to carry the things. I had brought her so far from home, I was responsible for getting her back. She made conditions that were impossible for us to fulfill, so we had to keep her on. Yet she grew worse and worse and quarreled with everyone. I had to redo her work daily until I was groaning with the bondage of it. Then I began to commit the situation to the Lord. Father, I confess I was wrong not to take John's advice at the beginning. He said I will rue it, and I do. And there is no help for me now. I can't get rid of her, but you could. Please take her from me. He did not choose to answer immediately, and I was praying daily to be relieved of her for some three months before the freedom actually came. Meanwhile, Mrs. Wong began to quarrel with everyone around her. She grew more and more cantankerous until the neighbors began became angry with her and the women in the market turned against her. Of course, she never admitted she was wrong. It was always someone else who was mean. But with everyone else disliking her, she became so unhappy that she quit one day of her own accord. She had met some horsemen from Tolly who were going back, and she hired a horse for herself. To me, it was a miracle. Little Pearl was in tears. She found her mother difficult to live with, too, and she wanted to stay with us. We offered to keep her as Catherine's nursemaid, and her mother, uncertain of her own future and expenses, gave consent. So the morning came when her mother departed. The whole household decided to celebrate and have a spring cleaning. "'Mrs. Wong had been supposed to do the sweeping and dusting, "'but as with everything else, it had been done negligently. "'Now we all set out to clean the house thoroughly. "'John insisted we have our pictures taken, "'heads tied up in bandanas, brooms, dustpans, "'scrubbing pans well to the fore. "'Oh, the fun of those days when we were all young! "'The years proved Small Pearl to be the jewel of our work at Yangping. Ping. "'She confessed the Lord and asked for baptism. "'Up until that time we had baptized none at Yang Ping.' We did not baptize on mere profession of faith, but only after testing for sincerity and careful instructing the applicant in its meaning. For the rite of baptism, John chose a site at the river, as it would be in full view of the busy market. However, he decided that small pearls should be baptized very early in the morning before people were abroad. There happened, however, to be an early bird. A Chinese woman opposite us opened the door that morning to behold a procession issuing from the white man's house across the river. First came Pastor Coon, recognizable by his height, and built. Then came Small Pearl, after her Mrs. Coon, Mrs. Kelly, Mrs. Yang, and a string of Chinese, the Christians probably. Pastor Coon and Small Pearl entered the river, and the others stood on the bank. Then Pastor took the child, swung her beneath the water. The astonished spectator only watched long enough to assure herself that Small Pearl was allowed to get out alive, when she waddled off to awaken her neighbors to the alarming bit of gossip. In a few hours, the whole market buzzed with it. Some of the more courageous ones came over to our house and asked, Where has Small Pearl been doing that she should be treated as such a harsh punishment? The Christian ritual of baptism was then explained. Alas, not everyone chose to be convinced, but some believed. Small Pearl later became Mrs. Yang, the schoolmaster's wife, in the story Nest Above the Abyss. She was a godly woman, knowing victory and affliction, and was a real soul-winner. Our two years in Yangping was worthwhile if they had given us only small pearl. Chapter 11, The Forgotten Cloak We had been at Yangping about a year when a letter came from our superintendent asking John to escort a sick missionary out to Kuming. As I'd been suffering from back and headaches, it was decided that I would go too and consult a doctor. Traveling overland by mountain chair, we usually stopped at whatever mountain village we came to at dusk. As the villages were very primitive in style, accommodations were indifferent. Dark, dusty inns made you glad to get out on the road again the next morning. Our noon meal was purchased at whatever place had any food for sale about midday. Rice, vegetables, or perhaps even meat— "'served on an uncovered wooden tables "'with chickens and dogs dashing around our feet for scraps "'which might fall from our rice bowls. "'I was always glad to get baby Catherine "'due to her second birthday when we reached Kuming, "'out of such places and into her mountain chair again. "'Possibly that was the reason I forgot to pick up my raincoat "'at one such noon stop and calmly walked off without it. "'That afternoon we descended a steep hill "'on top of which I sat the village where we had our noon meal.' Down, down we went. Mountaintops and ridges surrounded us. I thrilled with the beauty of the scenery. The road dipped into a little valley through which a stream wandered. And then we climbed again, but not so high. We skirted the side of the hill for some minutes, and then turning a corner came upon Wang Ling Pu. It was a village comprised of mud and wooden houses on each side of the main road for perhaps a half a mile. That was all. Where to find the sleeping place that was least dirty, least smoky, was always our problem, and having found it, to get our beds in order before nightfall. It was when we were unpacking and arranging our things that I realized I'd left my raincoat at the noon-stopping place. Oh, John, I cried, rushing out impetuously to lay hold of my tired husband. I've forgotten my raincoat. It was drizzling this morning, you know, and I had it with me when we stopped for lunch. Is it still quite early in the afternoon? Do you think you could... No, I can't, said John, not waiting for me to finish. He was tired out and still had some dickering with the coolies to get through. They probably wanted meat money, a generous tip. I had not intended to ask him to go back that long hill for my coat. We had the young Chinese boy, Ma Fu Ying, with us, and I had thought to offer him some extra money to go after my garment. He was only about 20 years old, and that climb would be nothing to his strong limbs bred to those mountain hills. "'That particular raincoat was more expensive than I had usually purchased, "'but my father had urged me to get it, since it must last seven years. "'But I can't lose it, John,' I argued, probably with heat. "'That coat cost money. Someone has got to go back for it. "'Couldn't Ma Fu Ying?' "'But John himself needed the lad as a middleman to placate the chair coolies. "'No, I'm not going to send Ma,' he answered shortly. "'He looked the immovable object.' When he got that expression on his face, I knew Father talk was useless. All right, I'll go myself. Take care of the baby, I said, and flounced out of the inn and down over the path by which we had first come. I was angry, but soothed my conscience by telling myself again the price that had been paid for that coat. The sun was still warm on my shoulders as I wound my way around the mountain and down to the stream. The steep climb was plainly in view of the opposite hill. I knew the village was at the top, though out of sight but I had forgotten how long it took to get even to the foot of the climb. By now the sun had gone down, and Yan'an there is no long twilight. Night comes swiftly on. I began to toil up the steep grade, panting and gasping. Coming down had been easy. I did not realize it would be so difficult to climb. Dusk turned into dark, and still I struggled up that ascent. Tired out, I had to sit down to get my breath. Something rustled in the forest above me, and I went cold with dread. I looked up the road, I still had to go, and saw that I was merely at the foot of it. By far, the greater part of the climb was yet to come. Back at the end at Wang Ling Pu, they would be eating supper by now, and I was faint for want of food. I had rushed off without taking any money, and I had no betting. Even if I managed to reach the village at the top of the hill, I could not pay for lodging or food. I was crazy to go on. I must just eat humble pie and go back. Two years ago, said a voice in my heart, you bounced off just like this to your sorrow. You promised me that you wouldn't do it again. Yes, Lord, but he would let my expensive raincoat be lost. I defended myself, still sure I was right, and the voice of the Lord was stifled. All this time, my feet were wearily retracing the path to Wang Limpu. It was so dark by now that I was a bit nervous at being alone on the wild mountains. As I climbed up over onto the Wang Ling Pu trail, I saw a light ahead, swinging back and forth. Two men came towards me carrying a lantern. You can imagine my relief and joy when I found it was John and Ma Fu Ying. Well, dear, we were coming out to search for you, said my hubby in a kind voice. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I didn't make it. I got too tired. Don't worry, dear. Ma Fu Ying has promised to go early tomorrow morning. I'll pay him extra for it. I'm sure he'll be able to get the coat. You must be very hungry. It was only love and kindness that met me, but I had learned a lesson. The Lord was able to move John where I could not. In future differences of opinion, I was to count on that. Besides, I learned that it is foolish to get excited over a negative answer from a man who is tired, hungry, and harassed. If I had just waited until John's own problems were settled, of course, he would have been reasonable. I also learned to be aware of precipitate action to which my Irish disposition is so prone and which is such a trial to my deliberate husband. Quick, impulsive action must always end in humiliation and failure. Next time we will start on Chapter 12, A Hard Day. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.